It's not about the sower and it's not about the seed, though the seed is incorruptible. The sower is a mess, but it's about the soil. And that's you. That's you saying, Lord, speak to my heart. Show me things in my life that I need to change and I need to work on. And so we looked last week <clears throat> at Psalm 127, and we looked at the importance of the right contractor. Remember, we looked at Psalm 127, particularly in verse 1, where it says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. So we, we talked about uh, a godly home founded and how God is the builder of a godly home. And I want to encourage you young families, I appreciate those of you that bring the, bring the babies, bring the little ones on Sunday night. I know it's difficult, I know it's not easy, but I appreciate that. They're going to remember that one way or another. They will remember whether you brought them to church or whether you didn't bring them to church. But I'm going to tell you something. It's one thing to bring your kids to church. It's another thing to put God smack dab in the middle of your home and say, God is going to be, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be the center of our home. Why? Because except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. So we talked about the godly home founded. God is the builder. And then in verses 1 and 2, the godly home fended. And that is God is the protector. God is the protector. And uh, he certainly is the protector of our home. Thank the Lord. And then we looked at uh, the godly home favored, not only founded and fended, but favored. And that is God is the blesser. And we talked about how low children are a heritage of the Lord. And blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are children uh, in the hands of... So we, just, we thank the Lord for God and the importance of the right contractor in regards to God as the builder of the home. He's the protector of the home. He's the blesser of the home. Has anyone here ever been to hear a symphony orchestra perform? Oh, several of you. Amen. And uh, it, is, it is truly an amazing experience. If, you, if you've never done that before, uh, uh, fellas, it, it's a nice uh, uh, night out with your wife, amen. I'm sure she wouldn't appreciate a nice dinner. And you ladies, you had your chance. I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I, I can't throw a softball any bigger than that one. Amen. And uh, uh, nice dinner out to the symphony. I remember when Blondie and I were in Bible college, we went to, to the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, and uh, we heard a young uh, African-American piano player. He was playing Gershwin with a whole, it was absolutely unbelievable. They told us the story of how he, he had heard Gershwin on the radio and said to his mother, said, well, I'd like to play that one day. And his mother worked hard uh, and uh, bought him a piano in the middle of the Bronx. And he started learning how to play. And then he was playing. He was the soloist for the DSO. That was so amazing. And then I think probably the most amazing time my wife and I ever had was uh, we were back in Massachusetts as youth pastors. And uh, we went on the 4th of July to Boston in 2002. It was, it was the year after 9-11. It was about, you know, 9, 10 months after 9-11. And we went... 
and got there early and set up on the lawn of the Esplanade. And if you know anything about the 4th of July in Boston, they shoot the rockets off on the Charles River, and the Boston Pops play the 1812 Overture. And it, I'm telling you, I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about it. But first of all, we sat out there all day. We had, you had to stay in your spot and, and all that. But that was absolutely unbelievable. You know, they, they set the rockets off to the symphony, and it just amazing. And then uh, just a few years ago, uh, we went to U of M, uh, my wife and I, and Brother Al and Miss Scotty went to hear Handel's Messiah. And uh, just a, a great experience. I think about uh, classical symphonic music. I have a playlist on my phone called, it's called Beautiful Thinking Music. And a lot of it is, is symphonic music, no, no lyrics or anything like that. But um, symphony orchestra, is, it's beautiful. It's, it's filled with illustrative material. You think about a symphony. You think about being in one accord. Everybody is reading the same piece of music. They're not reading whatever they want. Everybody's in one. You know, uh, I think about a church in one accord. You know, one-off instrument in a symphony can make it sound bad. Uh, can I tell you this, Christian? Stay right with God. Stay, don't worry about everybody else whether they're right with God. You stay right with God. If you got a problem with a brother, forgive him. Or go to him. The Bible says you go to your brother. Uh, I think of all the times, Brother Wally, somebody has come to me and, and I didn't know I offended them. I didn't know it. And as soon as they said it, I said, Brother, man, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean it like that. I'm so sorry you felt that way. And by the way, we usually end up hugging. Amen? Being in one accord, I think about a symphony. I think about working together. A symphony works together. They all work together. I think about following leadership. Hey, we've all seen them up there. Amen? Or if you like the Looney Tunes. Amen? Bugs Bunny. Amen? <laughs> I think about, hey, again, in, in a symphony orchestra, doing your job. Doing your job. Listen, if your job is the timpanies, your job is not the trumpet. Your job is to look, see when you're supposed to do your job, amen. I think about contributing in a structured framework. Boy, we could learn something about that, couldn't we? Contributing in a structured framework. I think, oh, I love this. Whenever I hear a symphony, I think about this. Diversity in harmony. I love quartets. I really do. I love quartets. Miss Judy, they're singing the same note, but they're singing it in the melody, the alto, the tenor, and the bass. But they're all singing the same note. You know what it is? It's diversity within harmony. And God, by the way, isn't God all about that? Look all around this world. You want to look at nature, you'll see diversity and harmony. And then I think, of course, whenever I think of a classical symphony orchestra, I think of the beauty of music. The beauty of music. Music can bring you to tears. It can bring you to tears. I, I like what Johann Sebastian Bach said. He said, the aim and finish end of all music should be none other than the glory of God and the refreshment of the soul. Imagine, if you would, with me. The first violinist stands up, and as they always do at the symphony orchestra, they clap. 
And then, of course, the conductor comes up to the podium and he cla they clap for him. But the first violinist takes his or her violin and they take the bow and Pastor Brent, they hit the A. And then it is absolutely incredible because you hear all the instruments all hitting the A. And imagine the, the audience collectively moves to the edge of their seat as the conductor takes his big baton here. Amen. And he raises his baton. And he, then he brings them down for that crucial first note. And the bows begin to move and the lips begin to pucker, getting ready to blow the air. And the mallets begin to move toward the drum skids. And then there was absolutely no sound. Just complete silence. And you're waiting for that. In his book, the pianist, the extraordinary true story of one man's survival in Warsaw, Vladislav Spielman, the world-renowned Polish and Jewish pianist, told of his days in 1942 and 1943 when he was hidden in an apartment in the Aryan section of Warsaw. If you know Warsaw, Poland during World War II, they sectioned it off with a ghetto wall. And on one side were the Jews, and on one side were the Aryans. And uh, some friends of Spielman's through the symphony that he played with in Poland, they hid him out in this, this apartment. There were two huge problems. Number one, he had to be completely silent because all around were stooges that would rat him out to the Nazis. And if anyone was caught hiding a Jew, their whole family would be killed. So he had to be completely silent. But the second problem was, in that apartment was a piano. Spielman said that he would sit at that piano to pass the time and he would have his fingers two inches above the keys and he would plink out those concertos that he had learned to play as a young man and had gained him so much notoriety from memory. But can I say this? Those symphonies and those piano concertos were never meant to be silent. And an orchestra gathers together for the purpose of making and playing music audibly for the refreshment of the human soul, and all God's people said. The title of our message tonight is God's Silent Orchestra. The term silent orchestra is an oxymoron. You say, you know, I hear that a lot. What does that mean? It is a figure of speech pairing two words together that are opposing or contradictory. They don't make sense when you put them together. If you look here in Psalm 137 with me, 
Notice, first of all, the, the strange place. It says, by the rivers of where? Babylon. Again, if you know your Bible, you know that the northern, there was, of course, Israel was a, uh, a united monarchy through Saul and through David and through Solomon. And then, after Solomon died, it split. Jeroboam in the northern kingdom went off into idolatry. And by the way, that's why you ought to read, whenever it says about Jeroboam, it mentions Jeroboam. You can look at it over and over and over in the Kings and Chronicles. It says, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. It said, what a, what a tombstone. But then there was Rehoboam. And Rehoboam went with the two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And they became the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom went into Assyrian captivity. And then not long after, the southern kingdom went into Babylonian captivity. What does that mean? That means these invading armies came and took them out of their land as captives into Babylon. Can you imagine such a thing? Those of us that live in America, it's hard for us to conceive. I mean, forgive me. We're, we're, we're loading up. If, so, if we hear somebody's coming and taking captives, they say, well, they're not taking this one. That's just the way we see things in America. Amen. We love freedom. But this, this was a time, a, a strange place. They were by the rivers of Babylon. So not only is there a strange place, but there's a sad pondering in verse number one. It said, there we sat down, yea, we what? Wept. Why did they weep? Well, it tells us we wept when we remembered Zion. You ever get homesick? Yeah. They were homesick. By the way, they were also, you know what else they were? They were not only homesick, but they were sin sick. You know why they were in Babylon? It was a consequence of their sin. They knew that it was a consequence of their sin. They knew they were going to be there for 70 years. Read Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 29. We don't have time to read it tonight, but the God, God said, you didn't, you didn't let the land rest. I told you to let the land rest in Leviticus chapter 25. I told you <clears throat> to let the land rest. You wouldn't let it rest for 490 years. I'll let it rest for 70 years while you're gone. By the way, God always means what he says and says what he means. There's a sad pondering. They wept for home, wept, wept because of sin. By the way, I think they wept because of consequences. If you've ever walked away from God and you've been a prodigal for a little while, I promise you there's a tear in your eye for the consequences of what you did. I always say the prodigal, he came home, Brother Stark, he was restored glory to God, but you know he always remembered what he had done to his father. So there's the sad ponderings. There's a strange place. Look at verse 2. It says, We hanged our harps on the willows in the midst thereof. You know what I call this? I call this the silent prerogative. Harps were meant to be played. They were an instrument of rejoicing. Beautiful instrument, by the way, harps are. But here, they were silent. They were hanging on a branch. 
not where they belong, and all God's people said. Strange place, sad pondering, silent prerogative. Then we see the spiteful petition in verse 3. For there are they that carried us away captive, required of us a song. And they that wasted us require of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. So these cruel Babylonians that had taken them away, the conquerors, demanded a song of their captives. You've heard me say this so many times, ladies and gentlemen. It's one of the reasons why you ought to come to church. It, it, obviously, God told us to come to church. He told us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But one of the reasons why you ought to be in church consistently is there is a cruel world out there who doesn't care. And certainly, when we gather with God's people, we ought to care one for another. Well, this... This con these conquering Babylonians, they said, Hey, sing us one of your songs! By the way, can I say this? A wicked world has every right to ask a song of people who say they're going to heaven. So there's the spiteful petition. And then there's the sorrowful proposition in verse 4. What's it say there? They ask the question. It's a rhetorical question. They say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? By the way, the answer to that is if you're right with God, it's no problem whatsoever. The problem is they hadn't gotten right. God's silent orchestra of verses 1 through 4 is a picture of a backslidden believer who has allowed sin to both steal their song and silence their voice. May we notice some one-time former members of God's silent orchestra and what sin did to them. Go with me if you would. And I just have three points tonight, just a couple applications. Go with me to Genesis chapter 19, please. Really, the story goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 13. When Lot lifted up his eyes and he looked and beheld that the plains of Sodom were well watered, a, a good place for raising cattle. But uh, Genesis 13, 13 says, But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And then it brings us over to chapter 19 of Genesis where it says, And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat at the gate of Sodom, and seeing them rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with face toward the ground, and he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise early, and go your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and we're about to find out why. 
And they turned in unto him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. But before they lay down, the men of Sodom, even uh, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, come past the house round about, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night. Bring them out unto us that we may know them. We have tender ears here. I think we can all read. I think it's easy to interpret what is about to go on here. And Lot went to the door. And by the way, this is a great refutation of people. There are liberal theologians that say, oh, they just, they, they were just wanted to talk to him. No, they didn't either. No, they didn't. Because of what Lot offers. It says, and Lot went out to the door and shut the door after him. That was a good move. And uh, said, I pray you, brethren, do not sow what? Can I say this? What would be wicked about just asking some people some questions? Wouldn't be anything wicked about it. But that's not, it's a poor hermeneutic. It really is. He said, uh, and Lot went out of the door, shut the door after him, said, I pray you, brethren, do not sow wickedly. Behold now! I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out to you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes, only to this man do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. Again, we read this from an American perspective, and we think, uh, no way. Um, no way. I'm not giving my daughter. You do have to understand the Eastern custom, uh, Pashtwang hospitality. It was serious. When somebody came into your home, you were completely responsible for them. You took them. And Marcus Luttrell talks about that in his book, Lone Survivor, about how in Afghanistan a, a tribe took him in and literally they defended him against the Taliban because he was their guest. So we read that. It's strong, but still... He didn't say, you can ask my daughters any question you like. Verse 9, they said, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came to sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal, comparative word here, worse with thee than with them. We're going to ask you a whole lot more questions than we were going to ask them. No. Forgive me, if you believe that, you are theologically crippled too high for crutches. It says, And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house, shut the door, and they smote the men of the door of the house with blindness, both small and great. And this always amazes me, this last phrase of verse 11, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. They were still trying to get in. And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou any here besides son-in-law, and thy sons, and thy daughters? And whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place, for we shall destroy this place. For the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. And here we go. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. What do we see here about Lot in being part of God's silent orchestra? 
We see Lot's silent compromise with sin. And what did it do? It silenced his witness with his sons-in-law, his daughters, and his grandchildren. I want to tell you something. When you, as a Christian, as a believer, when you silently, quietly, privately compromise with sin, it will silence your ability to witness. And you know what it costs Lot? Everything. Everything. We see Lot silently compromising with sin. And what happened? He, he went to his sons-in-law and he, he told them, you got to get out of this place. God's going to destroy it. And they said, how do you know? It's not like you know God. I mean, we married your daughters. We know what went on in your house. We know how you dealt with things. We're not going to listen to you. You listen to me. This world this wicked world needs real Christians. It needs people who are different. It needs, forgive me, it needs a church that is different. I am so sick of churches trying to be like the world. It doesn't mean you can't have outreach. It doesn't mean you can't compel people to come in. I'm talking about all and all the church looks like the world and smells like Many people in Georgia had fallen to their death. They literally have a, a huge fence up to try to keep people, Brother Lolly, from falling to their death. And people would climb the fence and, forgive me, take selfies and be stupid and all that. And there's a spot where it says, and there's, a, there's a, uh, an angle to it, and it says, when you cross this line, you will fall over the end. You will not be able to climb back up. Gravity will pull you down. I'm telling you, that's the way slow compromise with sin is. It always pulls you down over the edge. More Christians and more churches are destroyed through slow compromise than they ever are through great sin. Compromise with sin will silence you. No, listen, you're compromising with sin all the time. You're not witnessing for the Lord. I'll guarantee it. Guarantee it. It'll silence you. Lot silently compromised with sin, and it silenced him. Secondly, we don't have time to go to the passage in 2 Samuel, but go with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Of course, we know the story of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 where he was supposed to be out to battle with his men. He was walking on the rooftop. He saw a woman bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. He called for one of his men. I love the fact that this is recorded in the story. One of his men said, you know that's the wife of Uriah, don't you? 
Whoever that man is, it doesn't tell us who he was, but he had the character to say, hey, that guy that's out to battle, one of your mighty men, that's his wife, in case you wanted to know. And of course we know what happens. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. She sends him a note back and says, I'm expecting a baby. He calls Uriah back off the battlefield to try and cover it up, tries to get him to be intimate with his wife. He won't do it. Gets him drunk. He still won't do it. Signs his death warrant, gives it to him, seals it, and tells him to hand it to Joab. Joab opens it, reads it, probably thinks, what on earth? So the battle gets hot. Uriah's at the front. Josiah gives the whistle. Everybody else, or Joab gives the whistle. And uh, everybody pulls back, and Uriah's dead, and he sends a, a note, and, and uh, he, he references the, the um, why went he nigh the wall there, and he says, by the way, Uriah the Hittite is dead, and David does this. Whew. I'm glad I got that out of the way. Well, then old Nathan the prophet comes in 2 Samuel 12. I love that story about Nathan. And he comes, and he gives David an illustration. He says, he said, let me, let me tell you a story, king. He says, go right ahead, prophet. He says, well, just imagine that there was two men that lived side by side, and one was rich and one was poor, and one had many flocks and herds, and one just had one little lamb, and they kept it like a family pet. It was really part of the family, and a wayfaring man came, a traveler came to the rich man, and he, he, he said, you know what, uh, it was a custom in the day for them to take care of the travelers and feed them and all that, and instead of going and finding the fatted calf, which he had plenty, he goes to the poor man, grabs his little lamb by the neck, slays it, makes lamb chops for the wayfaring man, and Nathan the prophet says to David, what do you think we ought to do with such a scoundrel like that? The Bible says David's wrath was hot. He got mad. His face turned red. And he said, the man that hath done this thing shall surely be put to death, and he shall restore fourfold. And Nathan said, thou art the man. And David stepped back and he thought of it, and then Nathan explained it. He said, he said, you're the king. You could have had anything you wanted. All Uriah had was this little woman named Bathsheba. And not only did you take her from him, you took him from her. And by the way, you are going to restore fourfold, and the, the sword is never going to depart out of your house. You ever wonder why all the trouble in Israel? I can tell you why. 2 Samuel chapter 11. So the sword's never going to depart out of your house. But you know what David does at that point when Nathan says that? He says, I have sinned. He finally Bill Stark repented. And that's what Psalm 51 is. And I'd like to go ahead and read the whole psalm, but I want you to just look with me down, if you would. He says, and, and again, at the opening, if you've got a, a study Bible or just a Bible with some notes in it, it'll probably have right underneath Psalm 51, it'll say, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And what does he say? Have mercy upon me, O God according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression. By the way, here's, the, here's the, one of the hard parts about sin right here. And my sin is 
ever before me. Even after you're forgiven, you don't forget. But he goes back, and, and if you look a little further down, we talk about uh, this uh, lot who compromised with sin and it silenced him. What do we see here about David? Look at verse 13 with me, if you would. Or verse 12, he says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, and the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. There's an implication here in these verses. David says, if you restore unto me the joy of my salvation, you know what he says right now? I don't have the joy. That's why I haven't been teaching transgressors your ways. If you look at verse 13, he says, if you restore the joy, then I'll teach transgressors your ways. But it implies that he hadn't been. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, the O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud. Again, you know what the implication is here? Brother Jackson, he'd been silent. He'd been quiet. He hadn't been singing. He didn't have his song. The sweet psalmist of David. And then he says in verse 15, Lord, what? Open thou my lips, and my mouth will show forth thy praise. Well, he hadn't been praising the Lord. Why? I'll tell you why. Because not only will compromise with sin silence you, but covering up sin will silence you. See, that's what he tried to do. He tried in every way possible to cover up his sins. Young people, listen to me. Listen to me. that in just a minute but
compromise with sin will silence you. Covering up sin will silence you. Go with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Look at verse number 69, please, of Matthew chapter 26. Now Peter sat without in the palace, that means outside of the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. Then began he to curse and swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him before the cock crow, Thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Remember, Peter was the one who pridefully boasted, Though all men forsake thee, I will never forsake thee. And, and, and by the way, I think he meant it when he lobbed off Malchus's ear with the sword. But here he is, denying that he even knows him. The one who had done so many miracles in Peter's presence. The one who had called him out of the boat. Said, come on. The one who had healed his mother-in-law. Boy, that's a godly man right there. If you ask for the healing of your mother-in-law, amen. I remember hearing some of the old preachers say about Solomon one time. He said, it wasn't the 700 wives, it was the 700 mother-in-laws that did him in, amen. Any man who gets a mother-in-law without a wife is crazy, Amen. Oh, what, what do we find here about Peter? What, we see Lot compromising with sin and with silence, and David covering sin and with silence. You know what we see here about Peter? We see him cowering in sin, and he was silenced. You ever, come on, be honest now. You ever know God wants you to witness to somebody? Because of sin, you don't. Because you're afraid. Come on now, be honest. Yeah, that's what happens. That's what happens when we cower in sin. So what's our application tonight? How about you? Sin will slowly silence you. That's what it does. Listen, the devil can't have your soul if you're saved. You know what the Bible says in Psalm 107, verse 2? It says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. 
So what do we do if, if we've compromised with sin or if we've covered up sin or if we've cowered in sin? What do we do? We confess sin. We confess sin. We confess it to God. And we bring it to Him and we claim the promises of the Word of God which say, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We put it in the depths of the sea where it's never to be brought up again and we go on for God. You know what He'll do? He'll give us our song back. He'll give us our witness back. I think about how sins subtly steal our witness. It, it steals our praising. It steals our, our standing for God. When the wicked are, are railing and God just wants some one little Christian to stand up and sometimes sin silences us. You know what we need to do each day? We have to start off the day with confession and say, God, help me. Use me. Use my voice.
Don't be silenced through cowering of sin. Just simply confess sin and ask for your song back. Lord, thank you. Lord, please help us. Oh, how easy it is to fall into this trap of just being silent. Certainly, God, you tell us there's a time to be quiet. There's a time to be silent. But to a lost world that needs Christ... Lord, they need us to be right with you. They need us to be in tune with you. They need us to have your power, and they need us to speak your word. Please, bless now as we move to the invitation. May not one grieve, quench, or resist what you are trying to do in their life. Please, Lord, help us to praise you. Help us to witness in a lost world. We'll thank you for all that you give. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, we're going to sing page 116. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The instruments begin to play. Page 116. Let's stand to our feet. The altar's open if you like to come. Maybe it's a slow compromise with sin. Hey, maybe you need to get right with a brother. Stop. Look at Matthew 18:15. Moreover, if thy brother sin against thee, go to him and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou escape thy brother part of God's orchestra if you're just there with your arms folded and a sour face. Maybe it's a slow compromise with sin. Maybe it's a covering of sin. But no one's ever going to find out. God knows and you know. Maybe it's the cowering of sin. Just that cowering effect that that time comes and you know you ought to speak up for the Lord but you just don't. Say, God, give me strength. Forgive me. Maybe you just need to confess. Just confess. Say, Lord, help me. Forgive me. I don't want to be silent. I want to be a mouthpiece for you. I want to be a voice that says, Jesus paid it all. <laughs> Let's sing it. It's page 116. Some at the altar now. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have